John chapter 8, let's begin uh, in verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, Every man went unto his own house. There was no chapter break. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? And they said this tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And he said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So as we head into this portion, just brief introduction, whatever Bible or translation you might have may have this in brackets and say things like this was not included in the best manuscripts the early manuscripts, the original manuscripts. You may even have this whole section not even in your Bible. Um, Understand, it wasn't, you know, this section wasn't in the original manuscripts. Nobody has ever seen an original manuscripts. How would the quote-unquote scholars know that? Um, This wasn't in the best manuscripts, scholars. So many of those manuscripts are all bungled up. I don't know what they think is the best manuscripts. Um, This wasn't in, you know, you you go through this whole oldest manuscripts. Well, some of the oldest manuscripts have this. So understand, to me, this is an integral part of the Gospel of John. Jerome tells us in the third century as he translated the Vulgate, When he was translating the New Testament, he used the Old Latin, which is 150, 200 years before Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus. He used the Old Latin, and he says he used Greek manuscripts in Antioch, Jerusalem, and in Alexandrinus to translate the New Testament into Latin. And he said those Greek manuscripts had John chapter 8 in them. Um, that's older than the best manuscripts, the, whatever the, everybody says. Um, Ambrose preaches from these at least eight times 
Augustine said this section was redacted because men lacked faith and were afraid their wives would commit adultery if this seemed permissible that Jesus would forgive them. So it was redacted. It was taken out. It isn't in Sinaiticus. It's not in Vaticanus. But Alexandrinus has two leaves pulled out. And the only way that it would match up to where it leaves off and where it starts up is if all of these words were included in the passage. One of the most interesting characters, Ivan Panin, immigrated here from Russia, went to Harvard, got his PhD in mathematics, set out to disprove the scripture because Hebrew and Greek don't have a numeric system. Both of them, their alphabet, are their numbers. So he set out to prove the Bible wasn't true. He got saved and dedicated 31 years of his life to the miracle of the numeric systems in the Bible and put an article in the New York Times. He would pay $100,000. This is like 1930, 1940. He'd give $100,000 to anybody who could prove the Bible wasn't the word of God. That was real money then. Uh, And he says on this passage, if you take out John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, that the whole numerical system of the New Testament collapses and falls apart. So I'm just trying to tell you that the God who's genius and powerful and divine enough to inspire the scripture and give us inerrancy and divine inspiration is also smart enough to preserve what he's given to us. And not for you and I to find out after 2,000 years we got an inaccurate copy of the Gospel of John. That's, to me, an affront to a God who loves us and has given us his word. So that's my position. You're welcome to your own distorted position. Every man went to his own house. Now look, most scholars agree, verse 52 is the Sanhedrin are gathered. And they're speaking to Nicodemus. And they answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look out, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. Then if you take out the section, verse 12 says, Then spake Jesus again unto them. Again unto the Sanhedrin. It wasn't talked to them in the first place. They, were, they met alone. So it is this section that ties it all together. They all went to their homes, to his own house. Jesus went out to Mount of Olives. Did he pray all night? Or Mount of Olives, did he go to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? We don't know. Typical, he would go to Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. He goes there, and verse 2 says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and he taught them. So it's early in the morning. Um, the Greek says, at dawn. He realized early in the morning there was early in the morning because when it got dark at night, there was no Hallmark Channel, there was no news, there was no, you know, Nick at night or anything. When it got dark, you went to bed, and so you didn't use up all your oil for your lamp. So most people rose with the sun. And it says early in the morning here is at dawn when it gets light. All these people start to come into the temple. And it says, and all the people came in perfect tense. It's, they, 
they came and continued to come to him, and he sat down the position of a teacher and taught them. He began to teach them and continued to teach them. <clears throat> and the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and they set her in the midst. So the scene here, you have to understand, these guys are trying to set a trap for Jesus. They don't care about the woman. They're after Jesus. And they bring this woman, they're going to say, caught in the very act, which means it was a setup. It's, or, it's dawn, it's early. How'd they know where to get her and who she was with the night before? Uh, this is a setup, so they get her in the very act. Now, <clears throat> I don't think they said, look, hon, um, we want to take you up to the temple and tell everybody about your adultery. Why don't you get yourself together and then let us know when you're ready to go? And she, oh, let me put on my makeup and get dressed, then we'll go up there. It wasn't like that. There's none of that here. They grab her. Does she have a blanket or sheet wrapped around her? They start dragging her. And it's causing this commotion. They're dragging her across the temple courts. She's screaming and spitting and cursing. She's mad. And they're dragging her. And the, the whole Bible study stops. Now, you know, I've been here when the Bible study's been interrupted. One time we had a guy walking in a gorilla suit. You can't help but notice that. You kind of try to turn away. We had somebody come in in a clown suit once, looked like Bozo, big nose, hair, you know. They had to take him out. Um, had a guy walk up on stage with me teaching Daniel and said, I don't really agree with what you said about the passage. He looked at him and I said, not now. He said, oh, and he walked away. Uh, you know, go through the years and think of all the, so th this is one for the books. Jesus is teaching. He's sitting. The people are standing all around him. You can't see him. And all of a sudden, there's all this racket, and they're dragging this woman in, and they drag him up to the front where Jesus is sitting. Now, everybody's quiet. They've disrupted the Bible study. Everybody's quiet. They said unto him, Master, what hypocrites, they didn't see him as their teacher or their master. <clears throat> they say unto him, Master, the woman hears it, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? So they bring her in front of him and say, look, we caught her in the very act, which again, I believe is a setup. There's a question here as they do this, and, and that of course would be, well, where's the guy? What do you mean you caught her in the very act? Deuteronomy says, if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. It says in the book of Leviticus, it says, and the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So this is a setup. You know, they, they caught her in the act. Well, you can't commit adultery alone. If they caught her in the act, there was a guy. And they don't bring him because no doubt this is a setup. They probably said, well, you know, do this for us. All we need is her. And they drag her in. Adultery was a capital crime. 
in this culture. If you were a single guy and slept with a married woman, both of you are put to death. Single woman and slept with a married guy, both of you are put to death. Both married, both of you are put to death. Not just one, both. The Mishnah tells us that when they caught a couple in adultery, they would take them to the center of the village or the town. They would get eight ropes, four of them tied to each person in four different directions. And when they got the ropes around their necks, they would pull until that person suffocated and died. Then the person who had the rope in front of them, they were standing waist deep in manure, would pull them face down into the manure, and then they would come and plant a tree in the middle of that. So in your town square, if you had this big green happy tree growing there, it was constantly reminding people there's adultery in my roots here. There's, there's something here, and it spoke to the culture. The Mishnah also said if it was a Levite's wife, they took her down to the valley of Hinnom, they stood her waist deep in manure, and set the top half on fire. I know. That would, that would straighten a lot of things out, wouldn't it? Um, so capital crime, it, it injures the adulterer, it injures the spouse, it injures, it injures the children, it injures the community, it injures the congregation. It, there's so much injury from it that God was serious, and he said, you need to put this away, don't let this happen. Understanding that the family is the structure of a culture. You need to have a family to get a village, not a village to get a family, okay? So here... They drag this poor woman into the midst of this scene, these hypocrites, and they say to him, Moses and the law commanded that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? And this they said, tempting him, that they may have to accuse him. Because, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, I love this, as though he heard them not. So they come and they say, this is what Moses says. What do we do? Because they know if he says, go on, stoner, that then they can report him to the Romans because the Romans had taken the right of the Jews away to execute the death sentence. The Jews were not allowed to stone anyone. When they stoned Stephen, they broke the law, and probably the Roman authorities were paid off at that point. But the Jews were not allowed to execute the death sentence. So they know if Jesus says, yeah, go on stoner, they can report him then to the Romans. And the, the priests and the, the scribes are in cahoots with the Romans. They're all in the same payoff. If he says to them, um, don't stone her, then he's in trouble with Moses and the law, and they can accuse him from the other side. So they think they have him on the horns of a dilemma. Either answer he gives, he fails. So that's where they think, and they feel like we've got him. You know, we got him. He's trapped. Is, is Saul of Tarsus in the crowd? Did Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come to watch? Again, I think Gamaliel may be there watching. And it says they're tempting him. They're looking to accuse him. And then Jesus stoops down and with his finger he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Now, what they did is what you and I do. Jesus stooped down, started to write on the ground right this morning. We're going, 
you know, what is he writing? You know, what is he writing? Um, the Bible wants us to know that he wrote, and it's in these places, the only place that tells us Jesus wrote. So we're supposed to know that he's writing on the ground. We're just not supposed to know what he wrote. Seems a little unfair. What did he write? And that's what everybody asks. What did he write? What did he write? We don't know. We know the same, the, the same finger. It tells us in Exodus chapter 31, verse 28, that Moses had the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. We know that Jeremiah chapter 17 says, those, God says, those who turn away from me, I will write their names in the earth. We know Daniel, it tells us that the feast of Belshazzar, that there came forth a, a finger and wrote on the wall, many, many tekel eupharzin, and it says his bowels were loose. You can come to your own conclusion about that. It's the same finger, no doubt, that I've written before. Look, understand the scene that's been constructed here. There is the accusers, the condemners. And the reason we believe this patch is, has been preserved and it's not supposed to be taken out of the scripture is because they didn't become extinct when this scene happened. They're here this morning, they're still here. There's enough Pharisee in me and in you for us to learn something from the scene. The sinner, the accused, not just the accuser, the accused, rightfully so, are sitting here this morning. Well, I never committed adultery. Well, Jesus said, if you lust after a man or woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So there's enough of the woman in all of us for us to learn something as we look through this. And the third party still involved, Jesus, he's still here. And I think we can learn the most by looking at him. So the scene is developed and the picture is placed before us. And he stoops down and he begins to write on the ground with his finger, it says. And when they continued asking him, they asking him and ask him, they feel like they've got him under pressure. That he, has, he lifted himself up and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So it's interesting. In their law, they believed that when you brought someone to be stoned, <clears throat> that you had to be an eyewitness <clears throat> to ask out of the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word be confirmed, and then the person who brought them was the one who would throw the first stone. So Jesus says, all right, the law of Moses stands. I'm not lessening the sin of adultery. I'm not taking away from the guilt of it. 
And I'm not taking away from the fact that the law asks for a death sentence when someone commits adultery. So let's get the execution underway. He who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. Now, without sin is one word in the Greek there, and it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means without the consciousness of sin, without the awareness of sin, with, with, without any sense of sin in your own life. He says, he who's without sin. But I agree with you guys. Death penalty. Let's get rolling. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And it says, they're all standing there. They must have brought their stones with, because you don't find stones laying on the temple courts. So they all came with their ammo. And he said, all right, go for it. And it says, they being convicted by their conscience. Now, conscience is mentioned at least 30 times in the New Testament. Their conscience is not the law. It's not the word of God. Your conscience is not the word of God. It warns you because your conscience is like a window that lets the light of the word of God into your life. Problem is some people get the window so dirty that they don't get the conviction anymore of what the word is supposed to do. The Bible talks about an evil conscience. Paul talks about the conscience a number of times. Their conscience, and I guess so, with Jehovah God come in human flesh speaking to them, whichever one of you guys is without sin, throw the first stone. It says they all start to leave. You start to hear the rocks thud on the ground, the temple courts. It says the eldest first, then on down. Because I, I, think, I look at that and I think it's because the, the older you get, like I can see behind me further than I can see ahead of me at this point. And I have this sense <clears throat> that if the Lord tarries, I'm going to see him before a lot of y'all. And when I'm getting closer to seeing him, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be as gracious as people <laughs> as I want him to be with me when I step across the line. At my age, I'm realizing, you know, the, the fallen nature inside of me ain't any better than when I first got saved. There's still a traitor that lives within and the older ones are realizing, you know, sometimes when we're younger, we're still ready to throw our stone. Sometimes when we're younger, we're still ready to accuse. And look, the accusation was correct. The death sentence is what the law demanded. None of that's being taken away. And sometimes when we're younger, we can tend to throw our stones faster. And I think the oldest ones there had a longer track record they could look at. And it says they began to drop their stones and leave. All the way down to the youngest was Saul of Tarsus, one of those. When he writes, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Or when he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They all walk. Jesus is down there writing. Everybody's kind of standing. The woman's looking around. He's down. She doesn't run when they let go of her. I think she's kind of frozen in the scene at this point in time. 
They who heard it being convicted of their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even until the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing, it says, in the midst. So the crowd's still there. Jesus and the woman are there alone. And when Jesus had lifted himself and saw none but the woman, he said, woman, where are thine accusers? Now, Jesus and the woman are left alone. How wonderful. Look, that's where every stone thrower needs to get. Every accuser needs to get alone with Jesus to understand the error of their way. Doesn't mean we don't exercise church discipline. Doesn't mean we don't speak the truth in love. It says if we see a brother overtaken in a fault with the spirit of meekness, we're to restore such a one. Restore there means to set a broken bone. It may take six or eight weeks working with somebody to help them get back on their feet again. Most of us don't want to make those sacrifices. So stone throwers need to get face to face with Jesus because when you do that, you realize that person doesn't need the blood of Jesus any more than I need the blood of Jesus. The, the person in the scene who could throw the first stone didn't. That was Jesus. He was without sin. Let him throw the first stone. He didn't do it. So any lesser stone thrower should get perspective if they stand face to face with Jesus Christ. He's the one who ended up condemned that shouldn't have been and didn't condemn the woman. The sinner needs to stand face to face with Jesus. The woman's alone with him, face to face. Look, if you're in sexual sin, you're in adultery, you're deliberately sinning when you know you shouldn't be, where you need to be is face to face with Jesus. Not Calvary Chapel, not organization, not theology. You need to be face to face with Jesus Christ the lawbreaker, and the lawgiver face to face, the sinner and the savior face to face. Because we can all look at somebody else and say, ah, man, you know what they did to me? You know what they said about me? My feelings are hurt. And then you kind of get a posse like those guys to drag that person into the open. And what you're saying might be true. What they were saying was true. Jesus doesn't lessen the severity of her sin. He just says, who's got the right to do this now? Let somebody without sin throw the first stone. And when Jesus lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Um, accusers, uh, from word categoro, Category. We love to figure out the category that someone else's sin is in. And the enemy comes and accuses us. It says he's the accuser of the brethren. It's categoro there again because, look, when you accept Jesus Christ, the sin issue is paid for. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But what we do is we fail here, we fail there. It says, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
So we come to Christ and the sin issue is settled in our lives. But then we still go on and we make mistakes, do something wrong. And then Satan loves to categorize our sins. You're doing okay in this category, but you really stink in this category. The accuser of the brethren. That's not the way it works. The Holy Spirit and God's word will help you as you're conforming the image of Christ, as your life becomes sanctified, as you change. And those things should happen. He that begun a good work is going to continue. But here he says, woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Now, it's interesting what he does. He uses this word woman just several times in John's gospel. When he's at the wedding of Cana and his mother asked him to get involved, he says, woman, what do I have to do with thee? My time has not yet come. When he deals with a woman in Samaria, he says, woman, where's thy husband? When he's nailed to the cross, he says to his mother, woman, behold thy son. Resurrection morning, the women come to the tomb, it's empty. Mary Magdalene stays behind and she's weeping. And he says to her, woman, why weepest thou? And that's what he says at her when he looks at her, woman. He doesn't say, you little hussy, you look, you lucky you're getting off with the skin of your teeth today, because I could hit you, I can one, I, in fact, I was thinking about one of those big stones they dropped. He says, woman, because he knew her before she was born. He was slain from the foundation of the world. He knew her when she was a toddler. He knew her when she was carefree. He knew the first time she was hurt or sexually abused or betrayed. He knew her as her heart was becoming hard. She was justifying her lifestyle and her sin. He says to her, woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she says unto him, and this is the only time we hear her voice. We don't know her name. We don't know what village she's from. The Lord has no desire to embarrass this woman forever. Or you and I. She said, no man, Lord. No. Some try to say, well, that's the common word, kurios. That could be no man, sir. And that's probably what she's saying. I don't think so. The, the Pharisees and scribes, as they drug her into the Lord's presence, they said, master. They called him master. I think she's completely aware with the person who's standing in front of her just saved her life, has the right to do whatever he wants. He calls her woman. He looks into her eyes and says, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And looking face to face with Jesus, she says, no man, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. 
He doesn't say what you've done doesn't deserve condemnation. He had said, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He looks at her and says, neither do I condemn thee. And it's the word he used, you know, woe unto you, woe unto you, you know, Bethsaida, woe unto you, Capernaum. And, and, he, and he says, you know, you're going to be condemned in the last, you know, of, you know issue of things. It's a heavy word for condemnation. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. I'm not bringing it down on your head. But then, very importantly, he says, go and sin no more. Those are present imperatives. You must go and you must not continue in sin as a lifestyle. Look, our culture wants both of these their way. The culture we live in says to Christians and to Jesus and to the church and to the Bible, don't you condemn me. They want the first half. Neither do I condemn you. And we want to live however we want to live. We want to do whatever we want to do. We want to snort whatever we want to snort. We want to touch whatever we want to touch. And we don't want you to condemn us. They like the first half. Neither do I condemn thee. All Jesuses should be like that. All Christians should be like that. All law should be like that. Neither do I condemn thee. But the second half of it, they don't want anything to do with that. Because he admits what he's not condemning her of is sin. You see, everybody wants to do whatever they want without anybody raising a voice of condemning their behavior. But they don't want to hear the word sin attached to their behavior. And he says to her, go, but you must not continue in sin. He, or you're going to get it. You're going to get hit with stones. You're going to burn, baby. That's not what he's doing. Look, he's an owner. Long before their encounter... He's watched her. You think of a father with a daughter. She's out. Using, sleeping around. And that father or that mother says to their own child, look, I'm not condemning you. But you got to stop living this way. Because... That parent loves that son or daughter. Because they're hard or legalistic. Look, if you're living in sin this morning and you know that it's wrong, there is a Savior who says, neither do I condemn thee. But you must move forward and sin no more. There needs to be a change. There needs to be a change. We don't know where this woman went when she left the temple. But she moved into the future pardoned, forgiven, cleansed, renewed, wherever she went. 
Did she look back as she walked away at him, silent, astounded? Or did he sit down to begin teaching again? Ken Geyer says, were there tears in her eyes? He says, if not, then, years later, she'd be ambushed on certain days at odd times, and the tears would come as she remembered him. Neither do I condemn thee. As she walked by our kids' bedroom at night and saw them in bed, safe, the blanket, tears would come to her eyes. Thank you, Lord. As she waved goodbye to her husband, leaving for work, tears in her eyes. Any of us here today that are thankful for life is because he's done the same thing with us. That we could live the way we know we should, that we could love our family, that we could love our spouse, that we could... What did he take us from when he saved us? I think how crazy my life was when church never did anything for me. But I encountered Jesus, and it changed my life. It changed my trajectory. I have hope now. I have life. And she walked away from this scene with hope, with life, set free. Now she's drawn to him because by love, instead of some form of legalism that nobody can live up to. I would say to you, look, you're here today, and you brought your stones with you. Drop them before you leave, please. If you came here to be judgmental, to cause trouble, you know, drop them, please. Love to hear those thuds at the end of the service. And you may be able to tell me, well, you don't understand, Pastor Joe, this person did this to me, this person did that to me. Maybe you're right. But drop your stones. Because you're a sinner just like they are. You didn't need the blood of Jesus Christ any less than they did. And yes, there are things you bring to the church, and we have to make, you know, biblical decisions as pastors about those things. But there's certainly a lesson here for us when we become accusers. If you're the sinner here today, you can hear, neither do I condemn thee. But you can't hear it without hearing, go and sin no more. Your lifestyle needs to change. I'm setting you free. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, then you need to come face to face with Jesus. You need to be left alone with him. I'm just a man. I bungle this. I don't get it right. But the Holy Spirit never gets it wrong. And as we end the service, I'm going to, you know, I'll put an invitation. If you're, if you're here today, believer, unbeliever. And you're ready to say, Lord, no man, Lord. There's nobody that can accuse me if you receive me. 
then I'll encourage you at the end of the service as we worship, we're going to sing our last song, to come. Get out of your seat. Come down here and stand in front of everyone. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And in your heart this morning, you think, I don't want church. I don't want religion. But whoever this Jesus is, I want this Jesus. And he can say, neither do I condemn thee because he died in your place. Everything that you deserve, he took on himself so that you could live and be free and be forgiven. You're a believer. And you've been under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know that he's saying to you, you need to go and sin no more. Your life needs to change Enough is enough. It's, it's time today for you to change. And if you want to come for prayer, you come as well. But let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's let this last song be a corporate prayer that we're all lifting to the Lord together in unity. If you want to be saved today, you want to meet this Savior, you want to get past everybody with stones in their hands, you can come down as we worship. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, some literature to read. You're a Christian and you've been messing way too long. And the devil's been telling you by creating categories, you can't come back to Jesus. You need to come. He paid for it all from before the foundation of the world. You need to come. And we'll wait for you to come. Let's bow our hearts. Lord, we lift these things before you. We're so thankful we can gather publicly that, uh, Lord, we see this freedom not enjoyed by Christians around the world. And, Lord, that we could see people turn to you today. We, we pray that would happen. Lord, your word says only you add to the church daily such as should be saved. We can't do that. It's not within our power. So, Lord, we just we, we put it out. We step back and we ask, Lord, that by your spirit hearts would be turned in the right direction, Lord. Only you can orchestrate that. Only you can cause that to happen. Only you can draw someone into your love and forgiveness. So we put it before you, Lord. We lift our voices and our hearts, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name.